You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. Patients needing transplantation have two options, receiving an organ from a deceased donor or from a living donor. In which cases might living organ donation be a viable option, and what are the advantages to this procedure? Our guest is Dr. Tim Tabor, Medical Director of the Kidney and Pancreas Transplant Program at Indiana University Health. Welcome, Dr. Tabor. Thank you for uh, the invitation. Well, we're glad you're here. How significant of an issue are organ shortages? And do shortages vary by region? Well, it's a big issue. We have now in this country, for instance, over 85,000 people that are just waiting for kidney transplants. And the problem is there's just enough kidney donors around that are available to these patients. We did, I think, in this country, a little over 16,000 kidney transplants last year. Obviously, that doesn't keep anywhere close to the number of people that need the kidneys. What organizations are responsible for organ donation allocation? Well, you know, United Network for Organ Sharing is kind of the overriding organization that matches deceased donors with potential recipients. They have a computer database where when there's an available donor, their information will go into that database and then the organ is distributed to the appropriate recipient. How do they make the decision about how to allocate those organs? Well, now it's primarily... How long have you been on the list? First of all, it's blood type and whether your cross match is negative. That is, if you don't have antibody to that organ and then it's allocated that way. There are some other parameters, for instance, if you are highly sensitized, that is, if you have a lot of antibody, you get extra points on the list. If you're young, if you're younger than 18, for instance, you get extra points. But by and large, primarily, it's whether you're a match and how long you've been on the list. What are the typical wait times for different types of organs, and do those vary significantly for any reason? They do vary significantly. It's a hard question to answer because they're so variable. You can wait anywhere from a few weeks for some organs to years and years for other organs, and it tends to be higher in large metropolitan areas. Indianapolis, for instance, were the number one in volume in kidney and pancreas and pancreas alone and intestine transplants because our wait lists here are a little bit shorter. That's frankly a very difficult question to answer. But it certainly is variable and it is really kind of dependent upon where you live. Why are those differences so significant? In other words, why do you do so many more transplants, say, in Indianapolis? Well, there are a lot of things that go into that. First of all, there's the aggressiveness of the center. There are ways that you can get somebody transplanted from a kidney standpoint Number one is deceased organs, so it depends on the aggressiveness of your organ procurement organization, how successful they are in, first of all, getting the calls from the hospitals where the individual has passed away, and how successful they are in talking to the families and having the families agree to the donation. From a facility standpoint, from a transplant center standpoint, how much you make use of things like paired donation which uh, we've started a program here a couple years ago, this has been reasonably successful. How successful you are in living donation in addition to the deceased donation and whether you can transplant patients 
who are the difficult to transplant, people that have lots of antibody, for instance, whether you can immunomodulate them, try to get their antibody levels down so that they can receive organs from uh, more potential donors. So what is the difference in numbers between the number of organs that are needed and how many are actually available for transplant? Well, again, from a kidney standpoint, there are now, I think, about 86,000 people on the list. And last year uh, in this country, there were 16,000-plus kidneys transplanted. So the numbers are fairly dramatic as far as what's needed and what's actually available. Now, again, what has been done nationally is more and more centers are doing things like paired donation and pushing living donation harder and harder to try to make that margin a little bit smaller. But it's been obviously very difficult to do, and we've only had kind of mixed success, frankly. Would you be able to do significantly more transplants if more organs were available? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the problem has been an organ shortage. It hasn't been shortage of patients willing to receive the transplant or centers that are able to do the transplant. There's been news about a new proposal that would prioritize giving kidneys to younger, healthier donors instead of those who've been on the wait list the longest. Can you tell us anything about that proposal? Right now, for kidneys, as I said, kidneys, as by and large, go to people who've been on the list longer. What has been suggested is there'll be kind of two tiers. The first tier will be that the kidney will go to an individual within 15 years of the donor. That is, if there's a deceased donor who's, say, 40 years old, the recipient would be within 15 years of that age. That'd be somewhere between 25 and 55. The second tier, then, that's assumed that 80% of the kidneys would be allocated by that formula. The 20% that are left then would be distributed primarily to people that had the longest expected uh, lifespan with a transplant. So is this controversial at all? Are people upset about it? It is controversial because as you can kind of do the math, it appears that it disadvantages older patients, and it probably does. One of the things that we think will happen if this goes through is that the use of extended criteria donors, that is, kidneys from deceased donors that aren't optimal, that is, maybe they had diabetes or maybe the donors were older, so they're not quite as good a kidney as standard criteria donors, those probably will be used more aggressively in patients who are older as they should be. Now, there is a little bit of a disincentive if you have an older patient. For instance, if you have a 65-year-old, which isn't that old, but it's not a 25-year-old, you have a 65-year-old on the list, and he's been on the list for maybe three or four years, and now his name is coming up, and maybe there's an extended criteria donor that comes along and could be transplanted to him. Well, should you put that kidney in the patient, or should you wait maybe another six months for a standard criteria donor with the idea that the latter, the standard criteria donor, would last longer than an extended criteria donor? If you don't have that ability, that is, if your older patient is no longer as likely to get a standard criteria donor, then you would be more likely to use that extended criteria donor. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Our guest is Dr. Tim Tabor, medical director of the Kidney and Pancreas Transplant Program at Indiana University Health. We're discussing organ shortages and when living organ donation might be a viable alternative to deceased organ donation. Dr. Tabor, can you tell us about living organ donation and how it differs from deceased organ donation? From a kidney standpoint, first of all, a living donor kidney transplant lasts about three years longer from a half-life standpoint. That is, a half-life for a deceased donor kidney is about nine years, and a half-life for a living donor is about 12 years. And that's not censored for death. That is, if the patient dies of a heart attack or, or whatever, that isn't taken into account. So the kidneys tend to last longer. Secondly, 
the wait time obviously is shorter. For instance, if you have someone who wants to give you a kidney, you don't have to go on the list and wait two or three or four or five years or whatever. You can get that kidney frequently within six weeks or two months. It just depends on how fast you can get the living donor worked up. Can you explain what you mean by half-life? The half-life is the point where half the kidneys have failed. So if there were 100 kidneys transplanted on a specific year, the half-life would be the point where 50 of those kidneys have failed and the patient has gone back on dialysis or had to be retransplanted. How often do people need a second transplant? It really depends on a lot of different things. For instance, their age. If you transplant somebody who's 55 or 60, it is our expectation that that kidney should last them for the rest of their life. However, if you have somebody who's younger, they're much more likely to need a second transplant because the kidney may or may not last for the 30 or 40 or 50 years of their life. So it really is dependent upon the individual patient. Are there any changes in the prioritization of how organs are allocated depending if it's your first, second, or subsequent transplant? Again, it's primarily age and uh, how long you've been on the list. The allocation becomes more difficult on the second and third and fourth transplants, though, because you have been exposed to these foreign antigens to your body. That is, you've already had an organ. Your body has made antibody to that, and you become frequently more difficult to transplant because of the antibody that you've created. What organs can potentially be used for living donations? The most commonly used living donor organs are the kidneys from a living donor because you have two kidneys you don't need it. Probably the second most common would be a liver. You can use part of a liver. Who are the different types of people who usually serve as living organ donors? Are they always family members or people that you know? Interestingly, this year, there were more non-family members that were living kidney donors than family members, and that's probably because of the increased use of the paired donor exchange programs throughout the country. In the past, it's been primarily family members, not so much now. But usually it is people you know. Now, in this country last year, there were 141 altruistic non-directed donors. That is, these were people who called a center and said, I want to donate a kidney for whatever reason, and that kidney was allocated to somebody that the patient didn't know. But by and large, it is people you know, can be family, but doesn't have to be a family member. Are there any qualifications or specifications that apply to who can be a living organ donor? Well, the biggest specification is that they're healthy. They have to be between the ages of 18 and the older length is really kind of dependent on how healthy they are. They can't have diabetes, obviously. They can't have anything that would cause them to have kidney failure down the road, like diabetes or high blood pressure, things like that. Are there any costs to living donors? Does it cost to give an organ to someone? The living donor expenses are borne by the recipient. It's more cost-effective, for instance, to have somebody transplanted than to be on dialysis. So insurance companies understand that. They also understand that people do better when they're transplanted versus chronically ill from kidney failure or liver failure or those kinds of issues. What are the risks or problems that somebody who is serving as a living organ donor might face? Well, it is a surgery. I mean, first and foremost, patients have to understand that they will have an incision and that they will have a surgery that they don't have to have. Secondly is there is morbidity and mortality associated with any surgery. While this is, for instance, from a kidney standpoint, a very safe surgery, there are patients that can have bad outcomes, and that has to be accepted, and that percentage of bad outcomes is dependent upon the center. So when an individual talks to a specific center about being a donor, that's something they need to discuss. What percentage of organ donations that are done today are done by living donors versus deceased donors? If you look at the number of donors, it's close to 50-50. But remember, for a deceased donor, you have the potential to get two kidneys. 
so about of the 16,000 kidneys that are done every year in this country, a little over 10,000 are from deceased donors and a little over 6,000 are from living donors. What are the advantages and disadvantages of using a living donor versus a deceased donor? As I said, from a living donor standpoint, the organ tends to last longer because there's not what's called cold ischemia time where the kidney, for instance, is on ice or, or being pumped, things like that. The biggest disadvantage is that you have a loved one or a friend or somebody you've just met who has to go through a surgery to give you that kidney. Another advantage from living donation standpoint, again, is that you don't have a period where you have to wait for years and years to get this organ. From a kidney standpoint, when an individual is on dialysis, they have an accelerated atherosclerosis within their body, so it tends to shorten their lifespan. The longer they're on dialysis, the shorter their lifespan. If you're preemptively transplanted or if you're transplanted very early in your dialysis career, then your lifespan tends to be prolonged significantly. Can you tell us what you mean exactly by atherosclerosis? If you look at the reason patients who are on dialysis die, it's from heart disease or it's vascular disease. And this seems to be associated with decreased kidney function. Indeed, kidney and heart disease tends to go together. If you're transplanted, you kind of change those parameters. The outcome tends to be better. Your risk of dying of heart disease or stroke are decreased dramatically when you have a good functioning kidney transplant. What's on the horizon for living organ donation? What changes do you think we'll see in the future? The biggest thing that's happening now, and I've alluded to it earlier, is paired donation. And that is when you have a patient who has a potential donor, but unfortunately the donor doesn't match. And that's either because it's a blood type incompatibility or the potential recipient has antibody to the donor. Now, those individuals can go in a database, and there's a few organizations within the country, and then now there's a national database where you put that pair with other pairs. And I can't give a kidney to this individual, but I can give a kidney to that individual. Maybe that individual's potential donor gives a kidney to my loved one. Now, this was done in the Netherlands, started about 10 years ago, and they decreased their list for kidney transplants by about a third. So we think this is something that in the future will be very successful and has been in the few years that we've done it here in this country, has done quite well. The other thing is there's the potential for either xenograft kidneys or for kidneys from uh, stem cells, those kinds of issues, but those kinds of potentials. But those are uh, further out than pair donation, which is available right now. We've been talking with Dr. Tim Tabor about organ shortages and when living organ donation might be a viable alternative to deceased organ donation. Dr. Tabor, thank you for being our guest. Thank you. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.